What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Americana Uncovered. So, I want to apologize for the long delay that was not foreseen. Uh, I just ran into a lot of things I had to do, working a lot, and sorry I couldn't get you the episodes that we were originally supposed to get to you in that time frame. But anyway, we are we are back for episode 21. So, last time we left off, we talked about the Rand McNally Road Atlases back in August. And now we're at the end of um, October, and uh, it's been, like I said, a two-month break, and hopefully we'll start rolling out some shows again and get back on track. So for this episode, I wanted to go over the SS Moral Castle. Uh, it is pretty close to, uh, a, well, the original wreck is... Um, was like five minutes from where I used to live, so it's pretty close to home for me. Um, it was just recently in the news a couple, um, about a month ago for something that they found in the water pertain, uh, pertaining to the ship itself. Um, so for those who don't know what it is, and I don't know if it's very like a, a, a widely known kind of thing, but um, it was a ship that would travel from New York to Havana and take people out. Um, and it randomly, mysteriously caught fire uh, in the middle of the night on September uh, 7th, or excuse me, the early morning of September 8th, 1934. Um, and most people would say, okay, it was just a fire, you know, those kind of things happen, but we're going to get into a lot of different details on why that might not be the case and how it's still an unsolved mystery almost 100 years later, uh, about 89 years later, um, and we're going to go into all that stuff because it's more than just a, um, a ship catching on fire and uh, basically just sitting out at sea and rotting. Um there's just more twists and turns to the story, and like I said, a lot of it is still uncovered, which is, uh, you know, the premise of this show. <laughs> um, so we're going to get into all that, and, uh, you know, I hope you guys enjoy this one, and let's get into the S.S. Morrow Castle. Alright, so um, for my source for this episode, I used Ripley's Believe It or Not, his uh, website. And in that website, they used um, an interview they um, they took from Deborah C. Wincraft. Uh, she served as the mayor and police commissioner for nearby Beach Haven for a decade and is the founder of the New Jersey Maritime Museum which houses the world's largest collection of the SS Morrow Castle uh, information and memorabilia. She has a lifetime acquaintance with the aquatic and a fascination with shipwrecks. Um, it was through her interest she co-authored Inferno at the Sea, stories of death and survival aboard the Morrow Castle to uncover the mystery behind Asbury Park's shipwreck on the shore. So um, whenever I'm referring to quotes or stuff like that, it's it's coming from uh, Deborah 
uh, wit, uh, Witcraft. Um, and I would suggest checking out that book. I have not yet, but I'm definitely interested because this gave us a, a kind of an open-ended thing, and I'm, I'm kind of hoping that uh, once I read the book, maybe there will be more, um, more closure. Uh, I'm kind of giving maybe like two or three like three um kind of theories that what could have happened but I'm I'm going to let you guys kind of decide for yourself what you think happened or didn't happen. Okay, so the SS Morro Castle had acted as a passenger liner between Cuba and New York uh since 1930 for a round trip uh it started at $65 about 1200 for today. Um Ordinate staterooms were going for about $200, about $3,800 today. Uh, passengers could spend two and a half days getting to Havana, two days vacationing there, and then two and a half day, days back. Uh, this week-long escape from the uh, bleak reality of life in the midst of the Great Depression was a singles mixer in a party atmosphere where individuals could gamble and drink alcohol. Uh, this was considered one of the original booze cruises. Uh, the Morro Castle acted as a legal way around prohibition. So they weren't on American soil. They were in the water. So during prohibition, um, like there was, this is one of the main reasons it uh, spried people to go on these uh, these trips because that they, they could drink without having to worry about it getting busted or anything like that. And, um, I mean, like I said, I th this was during the Great Depression, so at the time this was really only the wealthy uh, people that were taking these trips because, I mean, people were fighting for food, jobs, shelter. Uh, they really didn't have extra income at the time to uh, take vacations. So this was really for um, more of the higher class people that didn't, worry as much uh, about the Great Depression. So things seemed normal and nothing out of the ordinary on this particular trip in the late summer of 1934 until September 7th where the captain of the ship, Robert Wiltmont, died hours just before the ship was ready to take off. Um, so this is where it starts getting a little weird, but you could also say, hey, you know, these things happen. It's maybe a weird coincidence, but not going to think too much into it. Uh, it was stated that he had a heart attack, so they called upon William Worms to take control of the ship, and the only problem with that was Worms was uh, wholly unqualified for the task at hand. Following the disaster, Worms and his members of uh, members of his crew were convicted of willful negligence. Uh, these convictions would later later be overturned. Um, so we're going to find out a little bit more about uh, Mr. Worms later on in the episode, but just keep that name in mind. Okay, so the fire started early uh, in the early morning hours of September 8th, 1934, in the middle of a nor'easter. Uh, a fire broke out in the writer, uh, writer's room. Uh, and here comes Mr. Worms. He continued the ship at 18 knots, or 20 miles per hour, which doesn't seem like much, but when you're driving... Uh, steering, navigating a ship into a nor'easter at 20 miles an hour, you also have all that wind blowing uh, and and helping the fire spread and build uh, directly into those howling winds. Um, that was just a recipe for a disaster. Um, instead, he could have turned and changed directions, headed for the shore, 
cutting off at least half the wind supply, but he insisted on just going straight ahead and uh, really adding fuel to the fire. Um, another unfortunate piece of information was that the ship was covered in oil-based paint, which led the fire to spread through the whole ship, um, along with heavily uh, varnished furniture. Uh, it was a very upscale vessel. Like I said, most of these people were high class, so this was a, a kind of a high class uh, like vacation, like I said, so everything was decked out and um, unfortunately very flammable. So uh, that did not help with the fire. The wind, them going into the storm, how fast they were going, the oil-based paint, and all the flammable furniture. So um, who's to say if he turned and went towards the shore, cutting off half the wind, if it would have still not been, you know, a total disaster, but maybe they could have you know, cut it in half and saved a lot more people. But um, it wasn't entirely on Worms, though he played a big part. The whole crew on the ship was also almost all unfit. Uh, it was during the Depression, so people often took jobs regardless what it was. They needed the money, so whether they were qualified or not, they made up most of the crew uh, on the SS Morrow Castle. So, I mean, at this point, I, I didn't think they had Indeed.com where they really uh, took a deep dive into your resume. If they you told them you worked on a sh ship before and you knew the ropes, um, they probably more or less took your word for it. And uh, that was basically the, uh, the, the crew that was made up of the Morrow Castle. A lot of these people had no idea what was going on. It was their first... Um, endeavor on working on a ship and uh, most people weren't even getting paid they were just doing it for the food and the shelter so um, under the law the captain must order an SOS um, George Rogers was on the radio uh, was the radio operator of the ship but he uh, he's not allowed to send an SOS out until he's ordered by the captain and Warms claimed that he ordered the stress call immediately. Rogers says he didn't order it until 38 minutes after the fire was uh, discovered. 38 minutes is a very long time for a ship to be on fire, especially in a nor'easter, like I said, with all those, um, all that extra wind. So that's another um, kind of notch in the belt on what not to do uh, when you're driving a ship is not to drive into the nor'easter but not to also wait almost 40 minutes until the fire is broken out to call for help so um let's see the uh so the fire hydrant system also was faulty uh not creating enough pressure for the water so the crew could not even attempt to fight the fire so it's literally anything that you think can go wrong went wrong and whether it was just a coincidence which it doesn't seem like or on purpose um this is something that's way too uh suspicious for me already at this point but before we get even into this other stuff you got the captain dying hours before the captain that's taking over is driving into a nor'easter as he realizes a fire's going on he takes 40 minutes to call out for help and then on top of that the fire sting um the fire um, hydrant system is faulty on the ship. So, yeah, uh, this something's up. <laughs> so in between ch uh, 
trips when the ship was not being used, the late Captain Wilmot instructed the crew to paint the ship from front to back to keep its um, prestige presence and, you know, like a like an upsell, upscale ship, is like, like I said. Um, so when they u- went to go use the lifeboats when the ship was on fire, they couldn't move them because the, the chains that were holding them up were so solid with layers and layers of paint, it wouldn't budge. Uh, Witchcraft says, it's like a comedy of errors. There were so many things done wrong here. You just can't make this stuff up. Six out of the 12 life-saving boats were only able to be used. And you could see in the pictures, they are still pinned up against the ship as it's in flames. So, just adding insult to injury here. Um, No requirements teaching people how to properly don life jackets or how to get... to their muster zones uh, for the lifeboat occurred, witchcraft informed us, because Captain Wilmot was uh, such a people pleaser, he never wanted to inconvenience passengers or even imply there could be a possibility that they would need to don these life jackets and jump overboard. So no one even knew what these were. Um, uh, As a result, many passengers were perished uh, when they dropped into the water. There was a 30, uh, 30... to 50 foot drop they had never been properly shown had to put on a life jacket or hold it against their chest so the jacket came up broke their necks and they passed away with others um, it came off completely or rendered them unconscious which put them face down in the water which uh which graphics Whitcraft explains um there were so many things that could have done um to not have this happen um, and so many things that happened that defy any explanation. Um, so that, the, like I said, these were high class people. They didn't want, they didn't need a life jacket. And when they did and they broke their necks, maybe they wish they would have listened. Um, also another part of this is, um, with, uh, on this ship, there was rumors and who knows if they're true or not but a lot of this uh, boat hid a lot of refugees from Cuba so maybe that had a big point uh, part in that who knows There was scores of unaccounted Cuban children that were aboard the SS Morro Castle um, as refugee stowaways uh, to the best of our ability to reconstruct the passenger and civil uh, and crewless, it is to be estimated that they had approximately two, 620 people on the last faithful trip. The problem is that when the ship arrived in Cuba, there was tremendous amount of violence on the streets uh, of Havana, uh, Havana. People were being shot. You went at your own risk. The pu- Cuban people in a desperate attempt to get their kids away from violence that surrounded them, paid a crew member aboard the Morro Castle a couple dollars to smuggle their kids onto the ship. They made arrangements for their kids to be raised in boarding homes in New York City. When the ship met its fate, the first casualties of a disaster were these Cuban kids because they were put in unoccupied rooms, Wickraff explains. The crewmen essentially abandoned the passengers. Not all, but majority did. So there was, like I said, people wanted to get their kids out of Cuba. It's not a great time there and to send them away. And um, who knows if the U.S. knew about this or didn't know about this or, you know, it's another um, 
Another twist in the story. There was so much secrecy about the Morrow Castle, nobody would talk about it. No crewman would admit, first of all, that he took money to smuggle the kids on board. Then they did not want to admit that they even abandoned them. Everything about this disaster uh, is beyond belief. On the... On the Jersey Shore, they set up temporary morgues, and the bodies were actually assigned numbers because there were so many passengers that had passed away. Uh, later on that morning, the ship reached the Jersey Shore of Asbury Park, and many residents came on to look. Although many feared it would have been a crash, it would crash right into Convention Hall, um, which is a building that's built out basically on a pier um, over the ocean. But luckily, that was not the case, and it actually brought weirdly enough uh, a local economy boom uh, seeing tons of people flock to the town to see the shipwreck uh, the ship ended up sitting there for six whole months and the local people really um, were not too happy with the local government um, capitalizing on this uh, tragedy um, uh, for, tourism, for tourism um but the real reason that Asbury Park ended up having the ship towed off uh, the beach was because there was a um, was cargo of untreated animal hides in a hull of the vessel, and they had picked that they picked up in Cuba and were bringing back. And when the wind came off the ocean, the stench of those rotting hides pervaded uh, Asbury Park. So, how did the fire start? Um, you know, the previous captain had no. Uh, or I'm sorry, the late captain had no previous health issues prior, and he died just hours before. So some people claim that Wellmont was poisoned. Um, so after he died, they sent his body to the city to get an autopsy. But if things couldn't get any stranger, the body never made it to the city. It was lost en route. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about this story. It just keeps getting weirder and weirder. And... Um, they did not do a great job making this uh, very secretive. Everything is very obvious that there was something up. It's not if if something was up. It's what was up because something was definitely up. Uh, George Rogers was one of the last people to see Whitman alive. He was the radio operator. And at the time, the radio oper operators were placed on vessels like the Morrow Castle, Castle, not by the owners of the ship, but by the government. The problem with George Rogers was that the government never did a ba background check on him. Uh, George Rogers had a criminal background history a mile long. He was an arsonist. He had been charged with uh, terroristic threats against people whom he had worked in prior uh, employment. Just uh, overall... A guy that was bad news. Um, he actually became more of a hero rather than a villain right after the fire, though. He saved a woman's canary in the cage, and, and he got to tell all these elaborate stories about him saving tons and tons of passengers. Um, and then on top of that, he goes to get a job at the as a police officer in Bayonne, New Jersey. Uh, one of his lieutenants at the time, Vincent Doyle, became curious with George and started asking him questions about the fire. How did he think it started, why they waited so long to call it in, and different stuff like that. Um, as he started asking these questions, um, Rogers kind of caught on and became kind of paranoid and he decided that he needed to kill Vincent Doyle, which, you know, there's no other explanation on what you should do. But if someone asks you some questions, you, you must kill them. <laughs> um, 
this guy George Rogers does not seem like a, a very stable man. But anyway, so he took an aquarium heater and made a bomb out of it. Um, so he makes this bomb that's detonated by lifting the lid uh, of an evidence box in Vincent Doyle's office. Um, and it ripped his fingers off but did not kill him. The bomb wasn't strong enough. Uh, so they arrested George Rogers and he went to prison for attempted murder of his superior officer. After being released from Trenton State Prison on good behavior, surprise, surprise, Rogers served in World War II before receiving dishonorable discharge over verbal and physical altercations with other crew members. Later, he would be sentenced again uh, to prison, um, but life imprisonment after murdering William Hummel and his daughter Edith. Rogers owed money um, to Hummel, and instead of paying his loan, he chose to uh, bludgeon them both to death. So, just really stand-up guy, you know, um, real salt-of-the-earth kind of human being. Uh, he wound up passing away in Trenton State Prison, but he is only one of two inmates to ever have their files lost, which makes you think, did the government or any uh, higher-up powers have a hand in this also? Because, I mean, one time you get away with something... Okay, um, then we appoint you to this ship, and it catches fire. All right, no problem. Then you're a cop. Okay, then you try to kill a cop. Okay, no problem. Then you get a dishonorable dis discharge. It just seemed like he knew that he could get away with anything. It's like the government or someone owed him something um, in a higher-up position, and he was willing to do whatever. Uh, he's he was he was fine with doing whatever because he knew he wasn't gonna get any um, real punishment to this. So there's another um, wrinkle in the story. There's admittedly a lot of mystery regarding the events surrounding the Morrow Castle Captain's Wilmot's sudden death and the disappearance of his remains, the overturning of Captain Worms and his other crew members' convictions, the lack of investigation into Rogers despite overwhelming suspicion of guilt by the FBI a less than a week after the fire, um, in addition to the disregarding of his uh, history of criminality um, his strange death via brain hemorrhage in prison and the disappearance of his file. Um, so the SS Morrow Castle cost $5.5 million to build, and uh, most of that, or pretty much all of that, was paid by the U.S. government. So it is speculated that the Morrow Castle was being used to transport arms and money to Cuba. Uh, Whitcraft explains, FDR was a supporter of Batista, so he was supplying millions of dollars and uh, ammunition to the Cuban government, um, and they were shipped by the Morrow Castle. Now, of course, the government denies this, yet I have plans of the Morrow Castle ship that shows uh, these uh, munitions were where these munitions were stored. So why would they show the plans of the storage facilities for guns and munitions from New York to Havana, Cuba, if they did not carry them? Uh, Valencio Batista led a successful uh, coup of Cuba in 1933, which saw him act as the first puppet master of the country until his presidency in 1940. President FDR... Um, was an um, admitted supporter of Batista and immediately recognized the regime as legitimate. Despise a proclamation made in 1922 pr to prevent the sale of arms to Cuba, which reinforced FDR's good neighbor policy of um, the non-intervention -inter behind closed doors. It was the norm for the United States to frequently weigh their hands in various Latin American politics. 
Uh, so like I said, in the midst of the Great Depression where people had no food, no jobs, no places to go, America is sending Cuba uh, millions of dollars, not to mention the $5.5 million they already spent on building the ship to get them uh, the goods. Um, instead of running the risk of having crew members um, come out and tell the truth, they either off them or made deals with them just like George Rogers. So who knows if people... A lot of people lived on the uh, the ship itself before it burned. Who would come out and, and say stuff? Um, I could see this happening with George Rogers, and that's why he had free reign to murder and kill whoever he wanted because he had a huge secret that the government did not want um, anyone to know. So if you look at the pictures of the crewmen who were indicted uh, and found guilty of a whole host of felony charges abandonment failure to hold safety drills and all that stuff they're all standing there with smiles right after they were indicted and sentenced fdr overturned all their sentences and they knew that it was going to happen i really believe that they were not going to have to serve um any severe sentences uh, to this day there are still records of the moro castle that are deemed classified by the government there is so much more they wanted to keep away from the american people it's like the jfk assassination i think that there is so much more that the american people will never know and that will never be disclosed and i think that the people especially of the families of the ill-fated passengers deserve to know uh what really happened uh that was a statement from deborah Whitcraft, like I said, the co-author of Inferno at Sea, Stories of Death and Survival Aboard the Morrow Castle. Um, so, I, it, I'm not going to... There's a bunch of conspiracies uh, that you could think. I'm not going to say which one I believe in, but you could decide that for yourself. But whether whatever one you believe in, there's something <laughs> up with this ship. And uh, for those poor... Cuban children. Um, I'm sure some of these innocent passengers, they had to uh, kind of just deal with the result of the government being shady and FDR making uh, under the table deals with Cuba and not wanting his country to find out. So it's just a strange story. Um, I don't know if it's that popular. I mean, I've heard of it before. I never really um, went that much in depth of it i would suggest reading the book um inferno at sea uh there's a few i think there's a pbs documentary about it maybe goes a little more in depth and uh has a little more facts than kind of conspiracy uh ideas that i gave you guys but uh like i said i got this idea because just last month in september they pulled up a five-ton anchor out of the water in point pleasant new jersey which is right down the coast um New Jersey, oh, I'm sorry, they found through extensive research that this anchor belonged to the Moro Castle. So 89 years later, they're finding still things um, left over from this ship, which is, it's very eerie. But uh, I posted some pictures, or a reel of the, um, of uh, pictures of the ship. Um, you could see it on the coast of the Asbury Park boardwalk with it just in flames there, and then it, it's sitting there for months on end, six months out of, uh, before it was taken out. And uh, it's just an eerie... I know you, you can find a bunch of postcards about it and stuff, but uh, I just thought it was a pretty interesting topic and uh, another one of these 
government cover-up conspiracies uh kind of kind of deal so uh let me know what you guys believe happened to the ship uh, arson accident uh, government who was trying to hide their shady deal um yeah let me know you can follow me at americana underscore uncovered on instagram or you could email me at americana uncovered at gmail.com let me know what you guys thought of this episode uh hopefully we'll be back on track with some normal um release dates and not take another two months off but uh who knows <laughs> i'm just kidding we'll, we're gonna get some more episodes going and like i said i used uh, ripley's.com slash weirdness slash news slash moral castle shipwreck if you guys want to read more in detail in that article hope you guys enjoyed and i'll see you guys soon take care